Welcome to the Ridge Life Podcast. We at Pleasant Ridge Christian Fellowship trust this message will be an encouragement to you. If you're interested in more information about our church, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church. We're going to be here in uh, 1 Timothy here this morning. And I had said that we were going to take a little break from uh, Philippians just for uh, the month of December. And we were going to focus in on some of these things concerning about uh, who Christ is and uh, some of those prophecies uh, that we looked at. Um, we looked at uh, Genesis 3.15 about Christ being born of the seed of the woman and how that uh, gave us that uh, very first picture of uh, Christ, um, the prophetic picture of Christ that was going to come, you know, uh, the seed of the woman, it doesn't, the, the, the baby always comes from the seed of the man, not from the woman, but that's what we have there uh, predicted for us in Genesis 3.15. Um, uh, our brother Alan gave some stuff there about uh, the uh, Bethlehem and how that was predicted in Scripture about where Christ would be born. Uh, the very bread of heaven would come and dwell among us. And uh, last week we also focused in on the virgin birth and why the virgin birth is so necessary for our redemption. And as I had said, uh, out astoundingly that uh, 56% of uh, uh, theological students at seminaries did not believe in the virgin birth. And that was a, a study that was uh, given back in the 60s. And you think, boy, if that was then, what is it today? And so the virgin birth is absolutely essential for our redemption. And uh, so this week here, I'd like to tie all of those things up. And uh, in this portion of uh, the New Testament we find here in uh, 1 Timothy 3, and uh, the, the, the truth is the fact of Christ coming to dwell among us, Christ taking on flesh and dwelling among us. How crucial is that to our salvation? Very crucial, very important. Um, Paul addresses here Timothy with this topic that we're going to look at about the mystery of godliness. And uh, this, the mystery of godliness, godliness is an amazing revelation that, that we see that is unfolded before us throughout all of Scripture. It begins in Genesis, and it gets completely unfolded for us uh, all throughout uh, Scripture. And uh, Paul is going to kind of sum it up here for Timothy as he writes about this mystery of godliness, this amazing revelation. And... Uh, it really is amazing, and I, I think you'll come to see that as, as we move through the, through the text here. But uh, what's interesting is, is 21 times Paul talks, or the New Testament talks about these mysteries that are in Scripture. The mystery of this, the mystery of that, the mystery of this. And uh, if you really want to be encouraged and strengthened in your faith, I encourage you to, to look up all those times where it uses the word mystery and to study those things out and, and see, what they, see what they teach. Uh, but we're going to look at this one here about uh, the mystery of godliness. Now, when Scripture talks about a mystery, it's, it's not the, the fact that we can't figure it out because it, it tells us exactly what it is, all right? But the very word mystery in Scripture means to make known special secrets known only to those that are on the inside, so those that know Christ as their Savior, they, these mysteries have been revealed. 
But to those who do not know Christ as their Savior, those that are without Christ, they don't understand these mysteries that are revealed to us in Scripture. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus taught in Mark 4.11. He said to them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those outside, everything is in parables. And so it refers to information which has been kept secret, veiled is what Paul uses in uh, Romans 6.25. He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and to the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that had been kept secret for long ages, but now is disclosed and through the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So these mysteries that are in scripture here, we read these are God's secrets that have been revealed to us that know Christ. Those that have been born again, he reveals to him and to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, what these mysteries are. And so this morning, I'd like to invite you to consider the mystery of godliness in light of everything that we've been studying and looking at for the month of of December here and concerning who Christ is, that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. So here's what I'd like for you to take away with you today. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Believe it and proclaim it. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Believe it and proclaim it. So let's take a look, notice here at our text. We're actually going to work backwards here. We're going to start here in verse 16, but then we're going to work backwards, uh, verses uh, 15 and 14. So here's the first thing I need you to see. Jesus Christ is the central message of godliness. Look at verse 16. Paul's writing here to Timothy. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Here it is. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on the world, taken up in glory. So notice what Paul says here to Timothy. Great indeed, we confess this. We believe it. We're proclaiming it. Great is this mystery. It's something wonderful. It's news to listen to this. We believe it. We proclaim this. And here's the mystery. Christ was manifested in the flesh. Did you know that this was and still is the most significant event in all of human history? There has never been an event like this, that Christ was manifested in the flesh. That's astounding. That is something to take notice of. That is something that is great news to hear about, that Christ, the eternal God, came and dwelt among us, and he took on flesh. And this manifestation is something that could be known only by revelation, not by speculation. The fact that Christ took on flesh, dwelt among us, bore our sins on the cross, that's amazing. And Paul says, great is this mystery of godliness. And you know, this thing about this mystery, it's not something that someone comes to reason through. 
It's a revelation of who Christ is. If you can remember when Jesus was talking with the disciples, he said, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're a prophet. And he says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood did not reveal that, but my father, which is in heaven. There is a revelation of who Christ is. And by the way, if you know Christ as your savior, there was a time in your life where there was a revelation of who Jesus really was. He wasn't just some man or a great teacher, or a, a prophet. He was the Christ, the son of the living God. And so there's this mystery that has been revealed. And that mystery that Paul talks about here is that Christ was manifested in the flesh. And so he revealed what perfect godliness is. And it is God dwelling in us and living through us. And so this mystery of godliness refers primarily to Jesus Christ. Take a look at that word godliness there. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What is that? What is godliness? If someone were to ask you and say, can you tell me what godliness is? I'm sure we'd get a very wide range of answers of what godliness is. Some people think godliness is keeping a list of do's and don'ts. Some people thinking godliness is acting a certain way and not acting a certain way. But what is godliness here in the scripture? Well, the word godliness means a proper response to the things of God, which produces obedience and righteous living. So here in this text, Paul is telling us, great is this mystery of godliness, which is Christ in the flesh. So now think about that just for a moment. Who was the very perfect image of godliness? Jesus. He was the only one. That's it. And so we see Jesus here as the embodiment of pure godliness while he walked among us here on the earth. He was manifested in the flesh. We saw him. We beheld his glory as the glory of the begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And here is Jesus, that manifestation of godliness. You see, his life was dedicated to the glory of the Father and he always did what pleased him. John 8, 29, Jesus said, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That ultimately led Jesus, we see, to lay down his life for unworthy sinners. In John 10, 18, it says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down for my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. And so here in this verse, we have the summary of Jesus' life that he was manifested in the flesh. Think of it. Think of it almost as a will, if you will, a documentary. How many of you, maybe this uh, past Christmas few times, maybe you watched some home movies. Did anybody do that? Nobody. How many of you recorded some videos during Christmas? And how many of you watched those, right? So think of it almost, you will, we're seeing this picture of who Jesus is. We're seeing it almost as a documentary of who Christ is. He was manifested in 
the flesh. Now, interesting to note that this verse was actually a first century hymn that was sung in the early church. And it has, if you will, six verses or six stanzas of who Christ is. Now, here they are. Let's look at them. First of all, he was manifested in the flesh. Who was manifested in the flesh? God was. You see, even though it doesn't say God, we know that it is speaking about God. Why? Because other scriptures that, that show us that Jesus is God talks about this, about Jesus being manifested or God being manifested in the flesh. I can think of John chapter number one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Then it says in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we see Jesus here being revealed as God. He was manifested in the flesh. And uh, over the past few weeks, this is what we've been talking about, that God took on flesh. He was born of the seed of a woman, right? He lived among us. He dwelt among us. Uh, he was the one that was going to bring enmity between uh, the woman's seed and Satan's seed. And eventually Christ would delivering that crushing blow to Satan's head, right? And uh, deliver that. So Jesus here is Emmanuel, God with us. Notice also that Christ was not a creation as some cults like to teach. Uh, some cults such as uh, Jehovah Witnesses or even Mormons, they try to teach that Jesus was a creation of God that uh, Jesus was a uh, brother to Lucifer. Uh, no, scripture teaches us here that Jesus was God in the flesh and he was not a creation. Uh, his life did not begin by being born. He was simply manifested. And so that tells us that he always has existed from the very beginning before the foundation of the world. Christ has always existed. And so he always existed but now we confess, we believe, we proclaim this truth that Christ was manifested in the flesh. He has always been past, present, and future. He's the eternal God. Then look at this second stanza of this hymn here. Vindicated by the spirits. The word vindicated is literally justified or declared righteous. You see, when Jesus came to this earth, he did not come as a mighty king. He didn't come and say, here I am. No. What did he come as? He came as a lowly servant, didn't he? The Bible tells us he who was rich became poor, right? It says he who left the splendors, he left all the splendors of glory to come and dwell among us. And so this ministry of the Holy Spirit was to declare Jesus to be the righteous one by attesting to his deity. You see, when Jesus identified himself with sinners by submitting to baptism, the spirit justified him by descending on him as a dove. When he went to the extreme humiliation of the cross and bore our sin, being numbered with the transgressors, the Holy Spirit declared Jesus to be the son of God by how? By resurrecting him from the dead. Romans 1.4 says this, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
You see, if Jesus had been a sinner, then he would have had to die for his own sins and God would not have been able to raise him from the dead. But see, that's why the, the whole thing of Jesus being manifest in the flesh is so crucial to our salvation because if he was just some ordinary man, it wouldn't happen. And so he was vindicated by the spirit. He is the righteous one. Look at the third stanza here. He was seen by angels. Boy, now that's interesting. Vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels. You know, what's interesting when you look at the life of Christ, you know how many times angels were a part of his life? Just think with me. Even from the very beginning when he was born, who was it? There was angels, right, declaring his birth. It was angels that showed up to the shepherds to say, look, here, Christ is born in the city of David, right? There was angels that were present all this. An angel appeared to Mary. An angel appeared to Joseph. We see all that. When Christ was tempted in the wilderness, when he was taken, he was tempted. And after the devil left him, he was ministered to by angels while he was in the garden and he was praying in agony. We see that it was angels that came and strengthened him. Angels proclaimed his resurrection at the tomb. Angels spoke to the disciples at Christ's ascension. Listen to Acts chapter one, verses nine through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on and as he was lifted up, just Christ being lifted up and he was being ascended to the father after he'd spent 40 days with his disciples. It says he was taken up out of a cloud, took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so angels were always present around the life of Christ. Look at this next stanza here. He was proclaimed among the nations. You see, after the resurrection, the Lord Jesus made it plain to the disciples that the message of salvation was not just for the Jews, but also for the all nations. He told them in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. See, there is only one message, folks. One, that's it. There's not multiple messages. There's not many ways. There is only one message for sinners to be justified in the sight of God. And that is the gospel message. That's it. There is none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And so that message is the fact that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and that he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. Look at the fifth stanza here. He was believed on in the world. This is the only means that God has ordained for every person around the world to receive the gift of eternal life. You must believe the gospel. That's it. You must believe the gospel you repent of your sin and you turn to Christ. That is the only way of salvation. You must believe the gospel. Jesus said it well in John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Here's the last stanza here. Taken up in 
glory. Now this refers to the bodily ascension of the risen Lord Jesus. Scripture teaches us that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father and he's making intercession for us. And he was received up into glory. And one day, as the angels promised, one day, just as those disciples were standing around and they saw Jesus taken up, and they said, men of Galilee, what are you doing? Why are you looking up into heaven? This same Jesus that was taken up that way will also come back in that way. He's coming back, folks. He's coming back. Bodily, visibly, we will see him. And he's returning. And so this whole hymn here, this verse here, packs a lot of theology in a nutshell here. The incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection, the commission, the ascension of the Lord Jesus. He is God as revealed in human flesh and as such is the only Savior. So Paul here is talking to Timothy to say Jesus Christ is the mystery of godliness. He is the central message that we need to be believing in and proclaiming. And so Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, reveals the Father to us. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so Jesus Christ is that central message of godliness. Now here's the second thing. So here we are, we're gonna work backwards now. Secondly, Jesus Christ is to be the central message of the church and the believer. Look at verses 14 and 15. I hope to come to see you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so just as we saw that that hymn that Paul records there in 1 Timothy 3.16 contains this summation, this, this declaration of who Jesus is, his life, his ministry, in turn, the godliness of God's Son is now to be reflected in us. What is the purpose of a church? Why do we gather together? Why do we meet together? Is it so we can just say, hey, wow, great. I did my little spiritual duty for the week. There we go. I'm good to go. Why do we gather together as a body of believers? What is the purpose of it? Paul lays it all out here for us. It's to declare that Jesus Christ has been manifested in the flesh. And we gather together to proclaim that message, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to know that we serve the only true and living God. And that's it. You see, Christianity is not a system of rules and actions that must be performed to appease a deity. At the heart of Christianity is this mystery of godliness, the fact that God took on human flesh to live among the people he created. Recall, remember what we learned in Philippians chapter number two about Christ, right? How he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. And that's the same type of attitude that we're supposed to be reflecting and living in as well as believers. 
You see, as a son, Jesus remained completely obedient to his father in heaven and then offered himself as this perfect sacrifice for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 teaches us, for our sake he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then we later on read about how Christ was resurrected from the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. And so because Jesus took our place, sinful humans who were dead in their trespasses and sins now can be declared righteous before God and be born again. So this is the whole purpose of the church. We meet together to declare these truths that are true and they're real and they have weight to them. And we declare them among the nations that we live in. And we say, Christ is the only message of salvation. You need to repent and believe the gospel. Christ was manifested in the flesh. God came and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life. He performed miracles and he was crucified and he was risen and he is coming back again. And he's the only message that you need for salvation. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, it says this, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And see, we as believers, if you know Christ as your savior, we have been transformed by the message, the mystery of godliness. We've been transformed by that truth that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And if we've been transformed by that, then that's how we are supposed to be living. And as we meet together, you know what we're doing? We are proclaiming, every single one of us, I have been transformed by that truth. And hopefully that's true in your own heart, in your own life. I can't look into your hearts. You can't look into my heart. But what do I see? What do you see? Do we see a life that has been transformed by truth? And that's what we are supposed to be keeping the central message. Jesus Christ is the central message. And so we find here the fact that Christ was transformed. Now look at this. Notice how important this message is to be proclaimed here because look what Paul says here in verses 14 and 15. I hope to come to see you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. Now look at this. Paul gives us three phrases here to describe the importance of the church, what the church is supposed to be. We are supposed to be proclaiming that message, that mystery of godliness. And here Paul's gonna tell us how the church does that. Look at this. These three phrases, first of all, how to behave in the household of God. That's an interesting thought. Did you ever think of the church like that? A household, a family? And who's the head of the household? Not the pastor. Who's the head of the household? God is. 
He's our father. We're his children. And so the church is supposed to be the household of God. And just as much as a household, you have a household, I have a household, how we behave shows a reflection on what we believe. And so Paul says that the church is supposed to be the household of God. And so it mainly focuses here on the relationships which should be built among those in the church, which should reflect that message, that mystery of godliness to the world. So think about this just for a moment, okay? Um, Our dear sister here, Kathy, okay? Her husband just passed away uh, back there in uh, Thanksgiving. How does the church, how is the church supposed to function as a household by showing the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, the mercy of Christ to our sister Kathy? That's how we're supposed to function. That's how we're supposed to live. If one of our fellow brothers in Christ within the church gets taken over by some sin, how is the church supposed to function together? We're supposed to go to that brother. We're supposed to help them, enable them. We're supposed to deal with them in mercy and grace and love and strengthen them and try to help them, to try to restore them back to the faith. Paul says it's a household. This is how we're supposed to be living amongst each other. And so can I ask you a question? Why do you gather as the body of Christ? I mean, what brought you here to worship today? Was it just a spiritual checklist or is it because this is the household of God and we're here to gather together as the body of Christ? You see, people today look at church as an event, not a relationship with the body of Christ. It is just an event, something that happens on a Sunday morning. It's an event. It takes place. It comes and it goes. It comes and it goes. Comes and it goes. But it really has no lasting impact upon their life because they don't look at it as a body, as a household, somebody which they build relationships in with their life. You see, there ought to be a network of caring relationships where a person can be nurtured to maturity in Christ in a family atmosphere. And so the church is supposed to reflect Christ, the mystery of godliness, that Christ was manifested in the flesh, that we have been changed by truth, and that should be reflecting in the relationships that we build in our life within the body of Christ. Look at the second thing he uses here. The church is supposed to be the living God, the church of the living God. The word church here means called out ones. It's a called out assembly. And so we have been called out of the sinful world to be a holy people set apart for the living God who dwells within us and among us. Notice what Paul says here. He doesn't just say the church of God. I love this. What does he say? The church of the living God. He's alive. And so the church is the place where the living God actually dwells and is at work. Just as the phrase, the household of God, deals with our relationships with one another, that church of the living God deals with our relationship with God. And so as we gather together as the body of Christ, you know what we're doing? 
We are proclaiming Christ has been manifested in the flesh. I've been changed by that truth. You've been changed by that truth. And the relationships that we have, one another, the household of God, but also we have the relationship with the living God. Now, here's the third thing, last final thing. Look what he says here. The pillar and buttress of the truth. This is the other picture that he gives us here. Other translations read pillar and ground of truth or the pillar and the foundation of truth. I like those readings better. But the idea is that the church is to be the pillar and ground of truth. Did you know, sadly, today, people don't know what truth is anymore? We live in a postmodern world today, meaning the fact that truth is interpretive to whatever you think it is. So if you want to think two plus two is five, that's fine. You can think two plus two is five, and I can think two plus two is six. And you might think two plus two is four. Who really knows what the truth is? But you can believe your truth, you can believe your truth, and I'll believe my truth, but just don't say that my truth is wrong. And that's the kind of stuff that we're dealing with today. Where is the foundation of truth? Right here, God's word. This is the source of all truth. God is the source of all truth. From him dwells all truth. Is that what John uh, chapter one says? Talks about the truth, right? We beheld the glory of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth. And so the church is supposed to be the pillar and ground of truth. This is where we proclaim who God is, what he is doing, how he is at work in our lives. And so the body of believers, the church is the structure here that holds up and holds forth the gospel to the world. That's why I say that that message, the mystery of godliness not only should we be believing it, but we should be proclaiming it as truth and holding it out and saying, this is solid. This is truth. This is truth that changes us. And it makes us into different people in Christ Jesus. And so the mystery of godliness, God's truth is revealed in Jesus Christ is true, whether or not we believe it or proclaim it. It's like the guy that sits on top of the house and he says, well, you know what? I'm going to jump off this house and gravity's not going to affect me because I don't believe in gravity. Well, guess what? He's going to jump off that house and what's going to happen to him? He's going to have a visit to the emergency room. Okay? The truth is still the truth no matter if you don't believe it. It's still the truth. And the church is supposed to be the pillar and buttress or that ground of truth. You know, sad to say, but the American church today has forsaken truth for pop psychology, sugar-coated sermons, and American marketing techniques. We have programs to attract people, but are they being attracted to Christ? Are they being changed by truth? And that's the purpose of the church. That's what we're supposed to be proclaiming and holding out to the world. You see, it should not be our goal for, to get the world to like us. That should never be our goal to say, hey, what can we do to really make the world like us? No, it doesn't work that way. We as believers in Christ are supposed to be living for Jesus Christ and we should be living a life for the glory of God. 
whether or not the world likes us or not. Because the world is going to go its own way and we need to continue to follow Christ. And so we have churches today who are big on spiritual experiences, emotions, methods, but we're weak theologically. And this is why I say doctrine is so important to the life of the church, that Christ was manifested in the flesh. Boy, that is so foundational to us as our salvation in Christ. You see, the truth of Christ being manifested in the flesh and coming into the world to save sinners is a transforming truth. We were transformed upon hearing and believing that truth. And so it's important for the church to keep Christ as the central message, to keep Christ as the primary person of the church. Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifewiththeridge.church.